I think it's safe to say that this entire podcast, which is now at 23 episodes, turned a corner once we got to episode 13. That's when I first spoke about Yellowbag and his experience as a newspaper carrier in Des Moines, Iowa, at the same time that Johnny Gosh was a paper carrier. And he talked about a circulation manager that he had by the name of Wilbur Milhouse, who after Johnny had disappeared, would say in front of Yellowbag and other people, and on more than one occasion, nothing would have happened to Johnny if he just kept his mouth shut. And I had been talking about Yellowbag in almost every episode since then, but what was becoming apparent to me was that the listening audience wasn't hearing from him firsthand. You were only hearing me relay his emails to you. And on top of that, the only name that you knew him by was yellow bag. And I did explain this in episode 13. The whole purpose of using this nickname was not to be cryptic or anything like that. It was for a very practical reason. Yellowbag still lives and works in the Des Moines area, and he simply doesn't want his name to be immediately associated with something as dark as the Johnny Gosh case. For example, if someone did a Google search of his name, he wants only his work to show up in the results, not a list of Johnny Gosh links that could potentially take you down a million different rabbit holes. So after some of the chaos that happened over the past couple of weeks with this podcast, I sent Yellowbag an email just asking, look, I really think the listeners need to hear from you directly, not just me relaying your story. We can still refer to you only as Yellowbag, but I really think everyone would like to hear your voice. So given the circumstances, he agreed, and he was very empathetic towards some of the misunderstandings about this podcast that had been posted by Noreen Gosh, and he seemed like he genuinely wanted to help me continue to move this podcast forward. So that's what I have for you today. Yellowbag's experience in his own words and what he has to say about a former circulation manager by the name of Wilbur Milhouse. This is episode 23 of Faded Out. I'm Sarah Dimio. I hope I can add something. I I don't know that I can remember much more than, you know, what I've already uh, sent in emails, but... Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think that um, listeners just needed to hear your voice, basically, just to know that Yellowbag is a real person. So I'm, I'm going to be recording this call, and um, I was wondering if you could tell me again... Um, where you're from, what's your connection to the Des Moines Register? I grew up in Des Moines, and I believe it was in 1980 I started delivering newspapers for the the Tribune, the companion newspaper to the Register, mm-hmm. and uh, that was an afternoon paper, and then when it went out of business, I delivered the Des Moines Register from that point up until... I believe 1983. You said that you had been approached by somebody at the time and they happened to be in a Ford Fairmont? Yes, that was 
probably February or March of 1982. I remember where I lived at the time, and I think it was kind of at the end of winter because it was really snowing that morning, a, a real heavy, wet snow. And that's when uh, I was picking up my paper bundle, and that's when the guy in the Ford Fairmont parked and motioned for me to come to his car. Can you walk me through that sort of that experience? Like, what exactly happened? Like, what did he say exactly? Well, um, you know, it wasn't completely uncommon for people to to stop. Uh, every now and then someone would stop in the morning and ask if if I had an extra newspaper. Uh, so I really didn't think uh, anything of it when he motioned for me to come to his car. Uh, if I remember right, he flipped the dome light on and he asked if I could give him directions. Mm-hmm. And I said, sure. And then after after I told him that I could give him directions, then he started telling me, uh, why don't you come and sit in my car? He said, you know, it's cold, it's snowing outside, uh, come and sit in my car. Mm-hmm. And I told him, no, I'm fine. And, and then he just became more and more insistent, come, come into my car. Okay. And, you know, then I said, where do you need directions to? And he told me, Ankeny. And I started to tell him how to get from where I was to Ankeny. And he stopped me right away and he said, uh, I really don't need directions. I just want to mess around with you. And and back then when someone said mess around, it didn't mean play a prank. It meant have sex. Mm-hmm. And at, at that point, uh, I just said no as loud as I could. I, I took off running away from his car. I looked back to see if I could get the plate number on the car, but... Everything was covered with snow. Okay, and how old were you at the time? Like, how how old were you just for the duration that you had been a paper carrier? I, I think I started when I was thirteen, and I I would have been sixteen, I believe, when I quit. So I I think when the guy in the Fairmont approached me, I would have been about fifteen. Okay, and and that was about uh, six or so months before Johnny disappeared, right? Yes, uh-huh. Okay, um, so lately I'm just really kind of thinking um, that it was somebody connected with the Des Moines Register, um, and uh, and I could I could be wrong. I don't you know claim to be fact or anything like that. But ever since you told me about this guy, Wilbur Milhouse, um, and some of the things that he would say, and um, I always give everybody a footnote, like, like, well, maybe he was just basically a lowlife who was taking credit for something he didn't do. But you, according to you, you said that he said things on more than one occasion. What were some of the things he would say just in regards to Johnny Gosh? Well, after after Johnny was kidnapped, I mean, that was all the paper boys were talking about was, uh, oh, there's a missing paper boy, you know, who could have done such a thing and, and what happened. And uh, Milhouse uh, said on, on several occasions that he knew Johnny. Uh, he had, uh, Milhouse had been a circulation manager on the west side of Des Moines, I think bordering West Des Moines. He said that he knew Johnny, 
And Milhouse would almost become angry when talking about Johnny. He, he said, well, uh, nothing would have happened to the kid if he would have just kept his mouth shut. Mm-hmm. And do you remember the first time you heard him say that? Uh, it was there like, what was the circumstance in which he said that? Did he, did he just kind of blurt it out or was, because it just seems like it was a very, it would be a very incriminating thing for somebody to just blurt out like that. Yeah. I, I mean, as a kid, I, I really didn't, you know, understand how incriminating that was, but I, I just thought it was a really strange thing to say. Um, I think when he first said it to me, I was helping him when he was new as the circulation manager in my area. I had moved, and he started as the circulation manager about the same time, and the route list and the the uh, collection receipt books and everything were, were messed up. And Milhouse asked me to meet him at a house on my route, and we set at a table in that house, and... Uh, while we were trying to straighten out all the paperwork, that's when, uh, I think that's when he first said that to me about Johnny. Okay. Um, I remember I remember him saying it again in a car uh, when when we were riding with someone that I didn't know who was in, in the car with Millhouse. Mm-hmm. And I, re- I remember distinctly again that he said that in front of my mother. And you had told me, too, that even your mother uh, remembers him saying that, too, right? Yes, yes. I, I talked to her uh, here just a, a couple months ago, and she said that she remembers that, that she always suspected that Millhouse had something to do with Johnny's disappearance. And when she saw the the Johnny Gosh case on America's Most Wanted, she thought about calling, actually, and uh, reporting Millhouse uh, to the producer of the show. And, and I wanted to clarify again, um, because I try to explain this to people of where, what district uh, Millhouse worked in. And um, so he had been working as a, a circulation manager on the west side of Des Moines. And eventually he was transferred over to the east side. And uh, when did that transfer happen? When did he move to the east side? Uh, that would have been, I think, around the spring. Uh, my family moved that that spring uh, from a, a house uh, close to the fairgrounds. We moved to the Four Mile neighborhood, a little farther east in Des Moines. And right when I started delivering newspapers there, that was the same time that Millhouse became my new circulation manager. Uh, just from, from the research that I've done, it looks like before moving to the east side that his district was uh, around Grand and Ingersoll on the west side of Des Moines, uh, probably going up to about 63rd Street in Des Moines, which is 1st Street in West Des Moines. Did this happen um, before Johnny disappeared or was it after? You know, I, if I remember right, it was right around the same time. Uh, I, I just can't remember if it was a little bit before or if it was a little bit after that Johnny disappeared. Okay. And, and, well, well uh, no, actually, uh, yeah, Millhouse, he would have been there during the summer. So Millhouse would have been there when Johnny disappeared. And what do you think about the idea that 
maybe that maybe Johnny was the reason why he was transferred. Maybe like he was being inappropriate or anything like that. Because that was something we had discussed a few episodes back. Um, that maybe that was the whole reason why he would get so angry when talking about Johnny. Well, Milhouse didn't tell me why he was transferred, but uh, I knew from the things that he said that he wasn't happy about uh, about being transferred from where he was to the east side of Des Moines. And uh, one thing about uh, Milhouse, uh, I've looked up old newspaper articles on him, and it, it appears that he worked for the Des Moines Register from about 1968 to 1970. Uh, then he stopped working for them, and then in 1975, Milhouse was arrested for uh, sexually harassing a teenage boy by telephone, mm-hmm. and he was charged with sexual abuse. The judge allowed him to plead down to uh, disorderly conduct. He spent 30 days in jail for that, and he had a psychiatric evaluation. And then three years later, in 1978, the Des Moines Register hired him back after he had been been convicted of a, uh, a sexual crime. And by 1980, it looks like he was circulation manager of the year. But when he was transferred, I know that he wasn't happy about that. Uh, he was. It, it seemed to me like he was kind of on the outs with the Des Moines Register, and he told me uh, several times that he was afraid of losing his job. Talking a little bit about Milhouse, too, you had just said that he had been convicted um, of harassing a boy. And that was another thing I want to point out about Milhouse, too, was that um, he had a lot of things going on. Uh, You told me that he would call you late at night and call other boys, invite people over to his house to, like, expose themselves for money and take like to take pictures. Can you tell me about that? Like, when did that kind of a thing start? And how often did that happen? Well, if I remember right, he, uh, after I got to know Milhouse, he started calling me on the phone like every every evening, mm-hmm. uh, every day. And at first it was just kind of small talk. And then he started steering the conversation more toward uh, sexual things. He asked, you know, have you ever seen a Playboy magazine? You know, what did you see? And then uh, one time, uh, one evening, he asked me if I had a girlfriend, and I told him no, and he said, well, there's this female carrier. Uh, she's looking for a boy to have sex with. Maybe you could come over to my house and, and have sex with this girl. Mm-hmm. And then uh, later, he told me over the phone one evening, he said, well, I've got this easy way to make money. Uh, he said, I know this gay guy who said that he would give me $100 just for exposing myself to him. And Milhouse asked me, do you think I ought to do that or not? Hmm. And I told him, uh, no, I wouldn't do it. And then the next night, Milhouse called me and he said, well, I did it. It was so easy. I got $100. You know, you should come to my house and do the same thing. And, and I want to talk about, like, some of Milhouse's friends, too. You said that he hung out with some really shady people. And I'm wondering um, if you can remember any of those people you ever saw him hanging out with. Um, and uh, if you remember them or if you saw anybody more than once. I think, did you tell me that, um, the, was it the guy who approached you in the Ford Fairmont you saw again at one point? 
Yes, I I saw him. It would have been over a year later. It probably would have been the following summer, the summer of '83. The Des Moines Register had a a party for newspaper carriers at the old Skate East. And while we were there, uh, there was a guy uh, who was chatting with Millhouse, and the guy just really gave me the creeps. I couldn't figure out why. And uh, later it, it dawned on me that it was the Fairmont guy. I didn't recognize him. I, I think he had shaved. He had a mustache when I saw him in the in the Fairmont and shorter hair. I think he had grown his hair longer and shaved the, the mustache off, but I recognized him by his voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, the guy had kind of a, a distinctive voice, not like someone from Iowa, maybe maybe someone more from the East Coast. And was there anyone else you ever saw more than once? And um, and also, too, just what was your sort of um, general feeling about some of the people you saw Millhouse hanging around? Were they all kind of like shady, kind of scary-looking type of people? Like they just looked like they were up to something? Yeah, uh, it's kind of hard to explain, but he, he just seemed to hang out with with some really creepy young men. Uh, there was one particular guy that uh, I rode in a car with Millhouse, and, and this kid was sitting in the front seat. Um, I, I just remember that he had really beady eyes, and he didn't talk much. He was uh, sucking on a can of soda pop. And Millhouse was explaining to him why Johnny had to disappear. Uh, Millhouse was trying to justify uh, Johnny's disappearance to this this young man who was sitting in the, the car. And Millhouse said, well, he was telling on people, and that's the worst thing anyone could ever do. And the kid in the front seat was just nodding his head. As for um, what he was saying in the car that day about, like, you know, Johnny shouldn't have been telling on people. Um, did he, do you remember anything else he said during that whole thing that, like, did he give any specifics or, like, like anything that, like, sort of, um, like, any specifics on what exactly happened to Johnny? Not that I remember. It, it was a pretty short car ride. And I, I just, you know, at the time I wondered, well, why is he trying to justify Johnny's disappearance uh, to the, the young man who was in the car with him? You had mentioned to me, too, that he lived in an area at the time, and it's, it's called The Bottoms. And um, I remember I was talking to Ron Sampson about this, too, when I talked to him. And he says, like, yeah, The Bottoms. I know what area you're talking about. And he was basically saying that, I think the way he phrased it was, uh, it just, it seems like an area that probably has a lot of secrets. Um, and you were saying that, hypothetically speaking, that might be a good place to bury a body. What do you think, like, is a possible scenario? And I'm, you know, and obviously this is all, this is all hypothesis. I don't want anyone to think that we're jumping to conclusions or anything, but do you think maybe he could have like hidden a body out there or something? You know, I, I, I think it's possible. Um, you know, the thing that, the thing that I remember is that Millhouse was always trying to get me to come to his home at night. Uh, and he specifically told me, don't tell your parents. 
And then he claimed on the phone, well, this, this guy who's going to meet us, he'll meet us behind the house. Mm-hmm. And the whole time I worked for Millhouse, I never did go to his house. I, I pictured it as a, as a big house down in the bottoms somewhere. Millhouse said, uh, well, we, we have to, to uh, uh, you know, meet me behind my house when you come here because my mother's in the house and, you know, I don't want to disturb my, my mother. He had an elderly mother there. Mm-hmm. Uh, here uh, last year, I drove down to Millhouse's old house and there's, there's no backyard per se, but there is a whole block behind his house where it, it looks like, uh, you know, someone planned to build houses, but they never did. Okay. And so there's just this big, empty, I mean, it kind of looks like a, looks like it could be an old movie set or something, this big area with just grassy fields and, and trees and no houses and no one could ever see a person from the road back there. And now I think maybe Millhouse wanted me to meet him back there. Um, and, you know, and that's just pure speculation on my part. Uh, you know, I really think that if, if Johnny had been killed or, or Eugene or Mark and their bodies were dumped somewhere, that they would have been found by now. Can you just kind of reassure everyone why we should take you at your word that you, you know, you saw this and you heard these actual things come out of Millhouse's mouth, your credibility in this case? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm a real person, and uh, I'm 51 years old. I, I grew up in, in Des Moines, and I live and work in West Des Moines now. You know, if, if, if I could just, uh, maybe a couple things, if, sure. if I could just talk about Millhouse's character. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he never came across to me as, as creepy. He, he was really a, a good pedophile, if, you know, if there is such a thing. He, he was very very good at what he did. Uh, he was very outgoing. He was very friendly. He was very warm, uh, never came across as creepy. And, uh, you know, I never thought he, he wasn't a big man. I, I, I think I posted on the Iowa cold case website that I couldn't see him, uh, you know, single handedly kidnapping a, a child the size of Johnny. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Johnny was probably bigger than Milhouse. Yeah, but a, a couple things that I found out about Millhouse that I didn't know. Uh, you know, I, I spent hours and hours talking to Millhouse. He talked with me about his high school days, failed marriage, but he never mentioned to me that I remember that he was in the army. But uh, Millhouse was a combat vet from Vietnam, mm-hmm. um, and also I found on the internet that he was. Uh, at the site of a murder that happened almost right across the street from where he lived, there was a grocer that was murdered, I believe, in 1972. And Milhouse was standing there and was interviewed uh, in the article for the Des Moines Register. And uh, he talked about how the grocer gave him candy when he was a child. And I, I read another article where the reporter interviewed a neighbor and said that that grocer uh, who was killed after the store was locked in the evening only would have unlocked that door for someone in the neighborhood. Uh, so now I, I kind of have second thoughts about uh, maybe Millhouse was capable of violence. The, the Fairmont man, uh, if anyone ever looked like a killer, it was him. 
Okay. Uh, he, he, you know, I think it was John Rossi on, on one of your uh, interviews on your podcast said that, it, that the thing that surprised him when he saw the Fairmont man was how wide awake he yeah. was. And I hadn't, I, I hadn't heard John's comment, but several months before, I posted some, something on the Iowa cold case website about how it surprised me how wide awake the guy was at six o'clock in the morning. Um, you know, energy drinks didn't exist back then, but he, he looked like he had drank a half a dozen Red Bulls. He, he just looked like a guy who was really wired and really angry. And I could, uh, I could see that man killing somebody. Okay. And, and you had said that the Fairmont guy, um, he, like he, he didn't match the sketch of what we've come to know as Emilio. Um, he uh, he was. You said that he was much younger, like he was probably in his twenties. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I, I I would guess him maybe twenty five years old. Uh, short dark hair. A uh, 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 well trimmed mustache. Uh, brown eyes. Uh, the thing that I told the West Des Moines police when I called them just a day or two after Johnny was kidnapped, is that the man that I saw uh, driving the Fairmont six months earlier, that he had on a really distinctive orange and blue jacket. I called it a paramedic's jacket. It was a reflective jacket. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that really stood out, and, and his accent, when he said, I, I want to mess around with you, it was more like, I, I want to mess around with you. It okay. just it, it sounded like he wasn't from Iowa. Yeah, like it sounds like a very like uh, north north New Yorkish kind of northeast. Yeah, that's sort of, yeah. that's that's what I thought. Maybe maybe East Coast. Yeah, uh, somewhere along the East Coast. I think you've definitely, uh, as Yellowbag, definitely took the podcast in a whole different direction. Just in case anybody hasn't uh, figured out the name, it's because literally the papers for the Des Moines Register were carried in a yellow bag, right? Like that's, um, that's where that name comes from, right? Yeah, yeah, we were, you know, most of us, that was our first job. And the register really made a big deal about it. Uh, we would have an orientation down at the, the big building downtown where they printed the, the Des Moines Register. And we would go through a weekend orientation and then if we did everything successfully at the end we were issued our yellow bag and it was just such a big deal to have the yellow bag yeah well yeah it's almost like um it's it's like you're 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 being bestowed this bag or something like it's a it's a it's a point it's like it's like an honor it's like a it's a badge of honor to to carry this yellow bag um, yeah, it seems, it seems kind of funny now, but we were, you know, proud of the yellow bag back then. Well, yeah, especially, I guess, like, if you're if you're a kid and it's your first job and you're, like, you know, because I think any kid, when they get their first job, there's that little, like, like oh, that rush of, like, of, like, I'm, like, oh, I'm earning my own money now. And, it's like, the rush of, like, sort of excitement, I guess. Um, yeah, yeah. Someone, someone out there has the rest of the pieces. Um, you know, I, I don't know how Millhouse and, and the Fairmont guy were connected. I, I don't know if, uh, you know, Millhouse was connected to a bigger group of people, uh, you know, but someone out there does. Yeah. And I think that, that, well, that's what I've been trying to do with this, with each episode, try to add a little more of a piece to the puzzle. You know, I, I think that it, it, it's probably a really small group of people who were involved in Johnny's disappearance because there was such a reward back then. 
if there was more than just two or three people involved, they would have ratted each other out. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, it was probably, it, it probably was like a widespread thing that was going on. And it was like this whole um, sort of thing that people kind of um, swept under the rug and didn't really talk about. Um, but it was the kind of the kind of a thing that um, sort of hiding in plain sight. You know, I, I spent probably a half an hour or 45 minutes on the phone with the, the West Des Moines detective. I think his name's Tom Boyd. If I remember right, yeah, I remember in charge that of Johnny's case. Yeah. And, you know, he he was honest enough to admit that it's the coldest of cold cases. Uh, no one's working on it. Um, no one has worked on it for years. And mm. he told me the file's a mess. It's never going to be solved unless they find a body or someone confesses. Yeah. And I, I didn't get the impression that it bothers Tom at all that people are speculating on what happened. Uh, he he has nothing, as far as I know. Um, you know, he he wasn't surprised to hear the name Wilbur Millhouse. Mm-hmm. So that name must be on a suspect list somewhere. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, ever since you mentioned Millhouse and some of the things that he said after Johnny disappeared, it's like, you know, that's not something that people just go around saying, especially the fact that he said it more than once. Um yeah, I think that that's probably a, a safe assumption that even if he didn't directly do it, um, he probably knows who did at least I, something or, or knew who did because I know he's passed away. But um, yeah, that's what I've always thought is that, you know, maybe he didn't do it personally, but maybe he knows who did it. Yeah. And, um, um, you know, if it was the Fairmont guy, they, they knew each other. So there's yellow bag for you. And if any of you were wondering, now you know where that name comes from. And as heated as things get online or on Facebook or whatever, there's something important that Yellowbag mentioned when he was talking about his conversation with Tom Boyd of the West Des Moines Police, who is currently in charge of Johnny's case. Detective Boyd himself had no qualms with anyone, like a podcast or just a private citizen like myself and any of you listening, looking into this case. Because Johnny's case is as cold as a cold case can get. No one is actively investigating it. There are only two things, and two things alone, that will ever put a break in this case. Either one, somebody will confess, or two, a body will turn up. So you can argue back and forth all day and all night about who's right and who's wrong and who's crossing a line and who's doing what. That's not going to change the fact that it will only be one of those two things that solves Johnny's case. I think what we're trying to do here is just find the path that leads to that. In other words, start the domino effect that ultimately ends in one of those things happening. So as I've said before, we still have some things left to do in this podcast. I've been attempting to reach out to some folks in the Des Moines area who may have known Wilbur Millhouse, and I will continue to do so and try to get their take on him. Until then, you can reach out to me by email at fadedoutpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find Faded Out on Facebook at facebook.com slash fadedoutpodcast. There is a closed group that you can request to join called Followers of Faded Out. And 
And please be patient if you do request to join, because lately I've had to take a little more time vetting people before I approve them, only because there had been a few people in that group who seemed to only be in there to stir up fights, and that is simply not what this is all about. So thank you for your patience in advance. As always, Faded Out is recorded at the Connecticut School of Broadcasting in Farmington, Connecticut. Thank you for joining me for episode 23. I'm Sarah Dimio. See you next time. <laughs>